radio.org.au Faith in the Church of Facebook A talk by Dr. Matthew Tan This talk was presented at the Theology and Communications Conference 2014 at the University of Santa Clara, California So my, my paper um, today is entitled Faith in the Church of Facebook and what I wish to, um, to do today is to look at the impact of Facebook's timeline format and the implications of having the church traverse this format given the, uh, Facebook's current status as kind of like an indispensable point of disseminating all manner of information. Um, when I was here um, two years ago, I looked at the ecclesiological effects of social media with reference to the fragmentation and the disembodiment of the gospel. Um, this time around, um, I would like to focus on one particular form of social media and investigate specifically one aspect of it, namely the time that that format embodies. I choose this topic of time because, as the Anglican theologian Scott Bader Say once argued in an essay entitled Figuring Time, Providence and Politics, a strong link, he says, exists between the way we experience and interpret time and the kinds of practices that we employ and the political communities that we occupy. And conversely, the practices and communities that we adopt and move within also at the same time constitutes a certain acceptance of modes of time as one's own. So I argue that uh, attention to the kinds of time that one subjects oneself to is going to be significant for the Christian because um, the time, sorry, because time will have an impact on the way that faith is received and also operationalized. Um, and I intend to focus on the relationship between memory and God's providence and show how this relationship looks in the church and how that differs in the church as it is traversing through specifically Facebook's timeline. Now before looking at the relationship between the church, Facebook and faith, I must first establish the case for the relationship between faith and the spaces that we occupy more generally. Um, to this, I would like to draw your attention to something that one may not necessarily associate with Facebook, uh, which is um, paragraph 9 of Francis's first encyclical Lumen Fide, The Light of Faith. Paragraph 9 explicitly identified a spatial connection of faith, which is why I'm bringing it to your attention here. Um, paragraph 9 challenges um, overly spiritualized or cognitive approaches to Christianity because it actually says in paragraph 9 that, quote, faith sees to the extent that it journeys, unquote. Faith sees to the extent that it journeys. I think this is an important phrase because it does not equate faith to a mere assent to ideas. Instead, faith is received insofar as it acts as a way of seeing. And journeying through space is formative of what is seen on this side of death not merely as a series of propositions, but events and conditions that mark one's life in this world. Now, such conditions are not just objects that we see. They are, not just, they are actually lenses through which we see. Um, in the book, The Social Construction of Reality, the sociologist 
um, Peter Berger and Thomas Luckman, they spoke of every action and decision being refracted through a rubric of what they call plausibility structures. These plausibility structures sort of act as subtle guides by which one comes to regard certain things or certain ways of seeing things as persuasive or plausible. In similar terms, um, Pierre Bourdieu spoke of how concrete forms of space and the positioning of the agent within such, space, such spaces create what, is, what he calls a field. And this field for Bourdieu creates a habitus or a set of dispositions to accept certain presumptions about the cosmos as real. He calls these presumptions the doxa. Now these dispositions are not the result of some prior process of um, cognitive discernment. They are pre-cognitively accepted as one moves through everyday life. Insofar as these dispositions are unseen and yet accepted, their acceptance, however unconscious, can be regarded as an act of faith, as the belief in the things unseen. Now, that may all sound well and good and sociological and abstract, but what does that got to do with the churches moving through Facebook's timeline format? At one level, the timeline format is just another series of many annoying Facebook um, format changes that Facebook has imposed upon us from on high. But I think there is actually something more profound going on in the change um, to the, the, the timeline format. From the set of collections on the front page which mark uh, Facebook's previous um, format, Facebook now has, now has now mimicked with its timeline format Twitter's mode of rationalizing everything in a user profile from statuses, uh, posts, citations, and photo uploads into a single thread of events, and then weaving them together with seeming, uh, similarly rationalized uh, threads of other user profiles as well, incorporating all other user profiles into this single stream of posts. Now this interwoven series of feeds um, are then fed through this single endlessly cascading feed on one's own screen. Anybody with a Facebook account um, uh, can attest to this. And no distinction is made between one type of post um, from another apart from its timing. It's only arranged in chronological order. Now only the latest posts in the timeline format stay within iShot and earlier posts disappear from sight and are retrievable only with considerable effort. Anything that the church seeks to make manifest through its traversing of cyberspace, in particular Facebook's timeline format, would have to be reformatted to adapt to this um, platform. And there are several topic areas that this change in formatting opens up, but what I want to focus on is the kind of time that the new format presumes and externalizes. And what I want to do is to investigate how Facebook is an artifact of a particular kind of time and how the churches traversing through this artifact should actually operationalize the lordship of a particular time and a different time. So what is the time that we are led to accept, led to accept while we are traversing through Facebook? Since the internet is inextricably hooked up to the infrastructure of the computer, I argue that the internet, as the computer, 
operates on a very modern conception of time, more commonly known as clock time or chronos time. Clock time is premised upon this ability to conceive of one moment being followed by another. That's how clocks work. It's a quantifiable time with units of very scientific measure, which is why clock time is often referred to as scientific time. All well and good in terms of the mechanics. Yet, in order for time to become a unit of scientific measure, it must be turned into what Walter Benjamin calls a homogeneous empty time. Now, these, this phrase is significant. Time must be homogeneous because scientific measurements of any kind require all units of measure to be absolutely identical to one another. And time must be empty because the most consistent way of ensuring such homogeneity is to strip these units of time of any substantive content. The kind of time that you can set your watch to, according to Robert Gibbs, has to be such that each moment has to be made to pass by and then pass away, which can only be so if the moment has no significance in and of itself, says Robert Gibbs. Thus, while contemporary clock time is characterized by what is commonly known as the march of moments, it is the march of the same kind of moment, with that same type of moment brought before you over and over again. It is the march of one damn moment after another. Where time is emptied and laid out on a string, what time becomes is a disposable commodity, and culturally, what matters is the intensity of the present moment. Right? What counts when time is laid on a string is the intensity of the present moment. When this happens, the relationship of the present with the past and the future becomes reconfigured. And it becomes reconfigured in a way where no one moment has a real or organic relationship with another. Because of the need to authentically experience the present over and over again, the past becomes reduced to a moment that has to be lived and then tossed aside. The future is just a moment whose contours remain completely unknown because there is no real basis from which one can apprehend the future apart from perhaps the present. Any pretension to imagine the future as anything different from the present, our culture regards as a kind of production of an illusion. And any attempt to transform the present in order to project it into the future becomes seen as a novelty, which is ephemeral and just as easily thrown into the ash heap of history as soon as it arrives. The Protestant poet Kathleen Norris took notice of the effects of living under a cultural condition marked by this unilinear structure of time in her book called The Cloister Walk. In it, Norris spoke of living in such a time as, quote, a death in life when my capacity for joy shrivels up. But the effects do not stop at the level of culture. For if the church were to uncritically immerse itself in such a culture, the practice of faith as a belief in things unseen becomes affected as well, so my argument goes. Now to this, I would like to refer briefly back to Lumen Fide, but this time to paragraph 13. A line of paragraph 13 reads thus. Once man has lost the fundamental orientation which unifies his existence, 
he breaks down into the multiplicity of his desires. And here is the important line. In refusing to await the time of promise, his life story disintegrates into a myriad of unconnected instants. In refusing to await the time of promise, his life story disintegrates into a myriad of unconnected instants. We will return to the question of what fundamental orientation can mean in, this, in the context of Facebook. For now, we need to consider how life as a series of unconnected instants links up with the notion of faith that operates under the lordship of clock time. What does faith look like under the lordship of clock time? At this point, we must look at the way memories of past events become apprehended in a unilinear structure of time. For it becomes crucial to understanding the way our faith in God's goodness is apprehended. In a structure of time where only the present is the only real moment, and at the same time, the, a disposable moment, the past can never be a reality as such. It becomes a specter. It becomes a ghost of an experience that comes to the forefront of one's mind but can never really be experienced in the now. It remains but a mirage, a mirage which disappears upon arrival. Memory becomes mere nostalgia, a locked away and irrevivable mental museum piece. And under such conditions, faith becomes a belief in museum pieces. Faith in God's goodness now becomes mere optimism because it has no real basis apart from a distant, unconnected spectre of God's goodness in an irretrievable past. Under the conditions of the lordship of clock time, joy shrivels up to echo Norris, because the joy of God's intervention in history becomes sporadic, momentary, arbitrary. When joy does come, it almost instantly vanishes in a past that is never retrievable in the present in any real way. And all you are left with is the norm, the constant stream of one damn moment after another. It would seem then that, as Walter Benjamin noted, homogeneous empty time, is, as this unchanging stream of moments, is also a time when radical transformation to that time, what he calls the messianic cessation of happening, is snuffed out. Now, if this flattened streamlining of time, this chronotic time, if this kind of time can render the joy of providence into a mere interruption, into a joyless normality, how is it any different to a Judeo-Christian conception of time? How is it any different in a Judeo-Christian conception of time as kairos? Normally, the notion of kairos has been used to explain, uh, sorry, been used to, to uh, describe time in terms of every moment being part of an eternal present. At one level, this is very true, because every moment is the time. Kairos can interrupt Cronus's cataloging of moments as merely a time, because every time is the time for Kairos. Be that as it may, such an interruption does not help us get to the more fundamental challenge, which is the transforming of the present's relationship with the past and the future. Indeed, insofar as the relationship between the past and the future is left unconsidered, a real connection between past, present, and future is never made. 
the notion of eternal present may even reinforce the fetishization of the present under the lordship of clock time. Understanding the apprehension of time and from that faith in providence in a chirotic register requires apprehending time, I say, in a Hebraic register. We need to learn to apprehend time in a Jewish register, in other words. To this, I turn now to Rabbi Edward Feld's little commentary on the Psalms entitled Joy, Despair, and Hope. Great little book. This provides a wonderful insight in the confusion of time in the Psalms. In a commentary on the confusion of tenses in Psalm 92, Feld makes reference to the similarities to the prophetic experience of God's concern for his creatures. For Feld, the prophetic imagination is paradigmatic of the psalmic understanding of how God operates in the world. And by extension, it becomes paradigmatic of the way God's time and operations enter into our time and operations. For the prophets, Felt says, the experience of God's involvement in the world is not one that is sporadic, occurring only in a single moment and then lost irretrievably to the past. Rather, in the prophetic imagination, God's work so penetrates the fabric of time that when it makes contact with and is experienced in the present, it goes beyond the present and weaves its way into the past, such that for the prophet, the present becomes linked to the past through the common thread of God's providential operations. Moreover, this thread becomes so woven into both past and present that one becomes the other. Past becomes present. And in the Psalms and the prophetic writings, this interweaving comes out in utterances where the tenses become confused in the same stanza of the psalm. Felt notes that the prophets experience the, work of, the works of God so viscerally that they speak of it as already having happened in the past. But that is not all, says Felt, for in the prophetic imagination, the future is framed by the prophets in the past tense so long as they remain anchored in the providential action of God, which again are felt so intensely by the prophets that even before they are experienced in the present, they have already broken into the past. To just quote a paragraph uh, from Rabbi Feld, quote, prophetic poetry sees God's expected yet unaccomplished acts so vividly that the past tense is used to describe an activity of God that is yet to be performed. Future possibility has become fact. The future is not open-ended, but already determined, close quote. Indeed, God's operations in the past become the very superstructure by which the present is experienced and the future is understood. And the passages in the Psalms that are read in the past tense actually refer to a future promise of providence. This then feeds back onto our experience of the present. For seen in the light of the prophetic imagination, the present is not the joyless norm that is interrupted by the joy of God's providence. Rather, under the lordship of the Kairos, it is the joy of the messianic that is the norm and joylessness that is the aberration. 
The anxiety we have regarding the future now shows the extent to which we are yet to be able to live under the Lordship of God's time. God's time is the ages under which Benjamin's uh, messianic cessation of happening takes hold in history. To reiterate what we have covered above, Facebook is not just a news feed. Facebook is a space. But even more than that, it is also an infrastructure that manifests certain commitments about the world and by extension, certain commitments pertaining to time. The acceptance of certain lordships of time are not just abstract. They lay the foundation of forming certain predispositions pertaining to faith in God's providence. Traversing through such a space, therefore, cannot help but become formative of a person's faith. And if I am right, if traversing through the space of Facebook can become erosive of faith in terms of the expectations of God's providence in everyday life, then the church's exclusive traversing through Facebook is arguably harmful to the church's mission in becoming a contact point for God's providence in an enduring fashion. Now you see why I am the prophet of doom. It would seem that if faith were to be nurtured, it has to be done so as the church traverses through a space that militates against faith, just as it has in every age, and just as it must now in the space of social media. If that were so, then the countermeasure to the, adult, the adulteration of faith under the lordship of clock time as institutionalized in Facebook will have to be the church's traversing of clock time parallel a traversing within a prophetic imagination that I described above, an imagination that operates under the ages of God's time. This imaginary is operationalized through the practice of liturgy. And to conclude, I would like to focus on the practice of recitation as a fundamental element of liturgy. Um, William Kavanaugh's um, book, Theopolitical Imagination, is a very good primer on how the Eucharistic liturgy provides a concrete site whereby one's imagination collapses past and future into the present. I do not want to revisit that work here, but what I do want to do is supplement that work with Fell's passage concerning the practice of recitation and proclamation of the word as the concrete means of actualizing the prophetic imagination. For Fell, recitation, the act of recitation with one's lips, is not just a neutral instrument by which words on a page are suddenly made audible to an audience. Rather, recitation is a practice of emplacement, the creation of a space and placing a body within that space. As the body, one's lips, as, they, as the body recites the word of the Psalms, one is moving one's body through that space, thereby planting the seeds of faith through the act of traverse as highlighted in Lumen Fide paragraph 9. Moreover, the act of recitation in Fell's words is an act of faith because it is creating the future acts depicted in the Psalms in the present, bringing the, the, the future acts uh, depicted in the Psalms in the present moment. It plants the seeds of faith because the act of recitation constitutes what Felt calls a foretaste of future reality. By reciting, you are, you are tasting that, that uh, future reality. 
Recitation creates the prophetic imagination because it does three things, three things at once. It places the one at prayer in the locus of that um, prophetic imagination, what he calls the house of God. The act of recitation is the embodied experience of the providence of God in the here and now. And it stretches that space to other bodies via the communication of experience to those that have ears to hear. It is to be noted that in recitation, one is not merely indulging in cognitive fantasy. In the act of recitation, through the bodily practice of liturgical recitation, one is actively resisting the inevitability of the lordship of clock time. It is an act of resistance. It is an act of resistance because it creates a real space with a real field of disposition, whereby another time, God's time, the kairos, is made perceivable here and now. In so doing, the practice of recitation is one, but not the only practice, whereby the adulterating effects of a traversing of the church through Facebook can be resisted. And the doing of that new thing mentioned in Isaiah chapter 43, verse 19, where God's providence is made present and where faith can be vindicated. Thank you very much. That was a talk entitled Faith in the Church of Facebook by Dr. Matthew Tan. To see more from Dr. Matthew Tan, visit divinewedgie.blogspot.com.au and for more interviews, talks and shows, visit cradio.org.au.